uh, welcome, and uh, let's start our time in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you that you are with us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us the guidance we need with your Holy Spirit, and yet you have given us our rational minds and our planning so that we, Lord, as humans, need to seek how you want us to do things, when you want us to do things. Show us how to blend that with the movement of your spirit. And that's what we'll be talking about today, Lord. How do we know when to stop and wait? How do we know when to move forward? So show us, God, in our structure of our life to make them effective. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so we are on, um, we aren't in the order that you see on your screen, but we are going to hit all of those, and we are in the number four, but we're really on number six as far as the order goes. Effective structures. These are eight qualities of, or traits of healthy churches, that they did studies of thousands and thousands of churches and found if they these eight were looked at and held up and, and worked on that the church could grow and be healthy. And so it's not about getting bigger, it's about being healthier, which then generally led to being bigger. So we are on our sixth one, effective structures. We have a couple more left on relationships and small groups. Um, so we are going to look, though, at how do we structure ourselves. And so I want to tell you a true story, and many of you will recognize the name Woolworth. How many remember Woolworth stores? Okay, now put your hands down. How many of you have no idea, have never heard of a Woolworth store? Come on, admit. Oh, good. Like, like you know, it's, this is not a, like a defect in your personhood if you don't know about Woolworth stores. Okay, so let's just be clear. Anyway, so they started in 1879, so that's why you didn't know many of us were around back then, right? No, not really. Frank Woolworth pioneered the iconic five-and-dime stores. And I remember another one called Ben Franklin, but we're not going to be looking at them. This is Woolworth, and he had these variety stores. And that was a big deal back then. In 1912, you know, like some 33 years later, he took all of these small little five-and-dime stores that had everything in them, all kinds of little things and big things that you could get, and he put it into a major chain that he called Woolworth. And I remember having, they had soda fountains in them. They were nice little stores. The Woolworth chain was so successful that a year later, after making them into a major chain, Frank Woolworth built a skyscraper in New York City with cash. He was so successful. And so he did very well. He looked to the future and structured his retail chain um, to adapt to the times. He was a visionary man. And so there were Woolworth stores everywhere. I grew up in Miles City, Montana, a town of 10,000. We had our own Woolworth store. Frank Woolworth, though, died six years later in 1919, and the generations of corporate leaders who followed him did not adjust to the new conditions in later decades. Woolworth stores went out of business in 1997, which is why you probably haven't heard of them if you are younger. They could, but the problem was the, the new corporate leaders could not let go of the past. They held tightly to these ineffective structures that weren't working, and they would not make the adjustments. So 2,000 years ago, another group 
refused to adapt to the winds of change that were blowing at that time. They tenaciously clung to the traditions, but their structures had become ineffective because they had made them ineffective. So let's look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to be starting with John the Baptist this morning. Matthew 3, 1 to 3, and then we'll skip to verse 6. Actually, we'll, uh, yeah, 1. So verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Verse 6, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now in the Near East, when, and it still happens today, because when I lived in Egypt, I saw this, this happen. When a, the president or a big king or an important person came, they would prepare the way for the king, make the roads nice. They would make the town all decorated and get all set for him so that when the, they would announce the king is coming in a certain amount of time, that everything would be ready for him to come and they would prepare the way. And so things had to be in good condition. John the Baptist was God's spiritual emissary. He came to spiritually prepare and soulishly in the hearts of people, prepare them for Jesus coming as the king. But John the Baptist chose this really unusual location, at least unusual for that time. He went out into the desert. It was kind of, you know, like a a big, it says, you know, wilderness ministry. Don't think of, of wilderness, you know, like up in, you know, in the mountains. Think of, you know, like lots of gravel, lots of rocks, lots of dirt. And he went out by the Jordan River into this arid, deserty, wildernessy place, which was completely different from the city. In the city, there were these structures that had been there for hundreds or thousands of years. And the city had become kind of, they had taken the law of Moses and they had added so much stuff to it that it had become cumbersome and unwieldy. And so John the Baptist wanted to separate from from what the city was doing that had become ineffective and say, come out into the desert, come out into the wilderness, come out where it's rugged. He even wore clothes that kind of gave a whole different image than the priestly robes, you know? And so it was a fitting message for repentance. Come, come into the wilderness, come and prepare for the arrival of God. Come to the wild and unstructured place that's not talking about all the points of the law, talking about your heart. And that's what John the Baptist wanted to do. Wilderness pictured rugged conditions fitting of a rugged message of repentance. While the religious leaders couldn't let go of their ineffective structures. So we find in verse 7, But when he, that's John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing... He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So, Pharisees, Sadducees, you've heard these names, right? You've heard them, but do you know their history, how they came to be? A lot of this happened about 150 or so years before Jesus came. The Pharisees literally meant the separated ones because back in that middle 2nd century BC, um, the civil kingdom was not a Davidic kingdom. It was the Hasmoneans and they had uh, done a lot of, of blending Greek culture into 
the culture, of, into the society. And so a lot of people kind of lost touch with the law. And so things got a little loosey, goosey. They didn't really, you know, Pharisee party emerged to say, no, let's take this law and let's remember it and let's obey it and let's not just try to, to compromise and become Greeks. And so they really started out as a good thing, Right? We don't think of them as a good thing, but they were back then. But the problem is over the decades and almost 150 years, by the time Jesus came along, they had added so much oral tradition to Scripture in the Old Testament, and it was considered to be equal with Scripture in authority. They thought these are God's very words. We're going to interpret this, that not only do you keep the Sabbath holy, here's what that means. You can't carry a load more than this distance, and you can't do this. And they, it was so cumbersome, it had become ineffective. And, and the Pharisees' original purpose was lost. No longer was it about separation. Now, the Sadducees, I'm not coming over to this side because you guys are Sadducees, but... <laughs> You are the legalists, and these are the liberals over here. Now let the war begin. And that is really what it was about. The Sadducees were the rich people. There were very few of them. They were the aristocratic class. And so they were the priestly class. They had the political power. The Pharisees, at least in those many centuries or decades before, they were the, the party of the common people, but had gotten a little out of touch. But the Pharisees, they ruled, they had the power, and they were going to do whatever it took to hold on to it. They were the liberal rationalists of their day. Didn't believe in a resurrection, didn't believe in the supernatural. And that's why you see these two parties so opposite from each other that would war with each other. But when Jesus came, they found a common enemy and they united So we have the conservative legalists and we have the hyper-liberal. There isn't even anything supernatural, but we're going to both try to hold our power in our different ways. And this is the group that comes out to see John the Baptist. Now, they're not coming out because they want to go, let's check it out. Maybe he has something to say. Maybe I need to change my life. This isn't happening. They're coming out because this will help their image. They will look good to the people that see them. And John calls them out. Look at those words. Imagine you are powerful and important and you get called a viper. And so he was calling them out. John the Baptist, rugged message of repentance. You brood of vipers, he says. Why do you think you're coming out here? You're not coming out here to be changed. So revivals in history almost always are preceded by repentance. Not by a whole bunch of structural things we do. Revivals start with the heart. They start with people changing their hearts. God changes hearts before he changes structures. I want you to remember that. God changes hearts before he changes structures. But so often we think, oh, we need this program. We need a building, which is there's nothing wrong with programs and buildings. I'm not against these this morning. You may think, hearing some of that, that, that I'm, I am, but I'm not. They're good things in their place. But often that's where we spend all our focus and energy, isn't it? Buildings, programs, things that we're going to do. And we stop, stop remembering what we're really here for. We stop remembering that it's our heart with God. So number one on your outline, if you want to pull that out. And by the way, just a reminder, there are questions that you can work through in your small group 
or at home personally on the back. But effective structures start with changing hearts. It's not structures will bring changed hearts, but changed hearts will bring effective structures. God changes hearts before he changes structures. So do you have external structures in your life that distract from a vibrant relationship with God? I want you to think about that. Is it possible your structures and how you've ordered your life and all the things or even very good practices, you know, quiet time, you know, that you can have a quiet time for hours and still not really have a heart for God. Did you know that? You can like spend all, I I worked with a guy that got up at four in the morning in a church, in a big church in Virginia, and and he, um, you know, he had the longest quiet time of anyone I knew, and he he tried to split the church left this letter that was critical of the pastor and, 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 and was legalistic and, and intense and all this. And, and so I learned then just because you spend a bunch of time studying the scripture and being in God's presence doesn't mean you listen to him, that you let him work where the work needs to be done. So are you willing to examine those structures and patterns of your life with an open heart? Because that's the beginning point of effective structures for a church is effective structures in our life, in our spiritual life. Because God's going to reveal himself to those who spend time in his presence with an open heart, not just depending on forms and structures. Well, I had my quiet time. I did my 20 minutes of Bible reading. I gave my money. I served. Doesn't that make me spiritual? That flows out of your spiritual heart. Yet churches, we spend a lot of time talking about those things a lot of energy, a lot of focus on our structures. Now, again, I'm not here to disband all the structures. I'm just saying there's a beginning point for us to look at our structures. It starts with our heart. Well, moving on, verse 9 of Matthew 3, John says to them, And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. This is after calling him a brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? But we have Abraham as our father, John says. I tell you that out of these stones, these rocks on the ground, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And good fruit is a heart condition, not just a bunch of activities. So John challenges the established religious attitude of that day that says, you know, we're children of Abraham. We're a descendant of Abraham. We're automatically in. And John's saying, you know what? If these rocks can become children of Abraham, the implication that Paul will write later, Gentiles, non-Jewish people can become children of Abraham. Heresy! There's no way they would sit there and think, that's heresy. You can't say that Gentiles can become, have a way of salvation, that there's some other way than our structure of the law and all the oral traditions to get to God. But that's what John's coming to say. The stones can become children of Abraham. Look at your heart. And the Gentiles would be the ones, the church, all of us, or most of us, are Gentiles. We're not Jewish-blooded people. But we have the way of salvation because of Jesus. It was a big change. And so this was a big changing battleground. John the Baptist threw down the gauntlet, so to speak, threw down and said, here's the challenge. 
and he calls them out. There's a way of salvation apart from your structure because outward structures of religion don't impress God. In fact, they become ineffective over time if we misuse them. And God's going to prune the unrighteous. There's going to be consequences for not accepting Jesus and his kingdom because centuries of structure are about to get chopped up and the root pulled out and all that structure of the law will be gone because God's kingdom is at hand. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. Literally, I'm not fit to untie them, to stoop down on the ground and untie them in menial labor of a slave. Ah, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the Messiah came to baptize with the Spirit. The Spirit would come to live in people. Nobody ever knew what that would be, but Acts 2 with the Pentecost showed them. And there would be fire that God will purify his church. He will remove whatever is not of him. Might not be today, but it will come. And he will sweep away now and in the future, ineffective structures and programs that want to take on a life of their own that take us away from God, we can become so busy doing good religious spiritual activities that we miss who God is because we're too busy to really spend time with him. And that, according to verse 11, will one day be swept away. So number two on your outline, over-dependence on structures brings stagnation. We can get so involved in structures that we stagnate in our spiritual life. Do you believe that? Are you willing to look at your own heart and say, is it possible that I might be slipping into stagnation on that pathway because my structures have overtaken my life? So what are the consequences for the church in America, which is very wed to different structures, whether they're a liturgical church or uh, a church that's charismatic or Pentecostal or churches that aren't charismatic or Pentecostal? We all have our structures, and we cling to them. What's it got in the church in America? A guy named Tom Rainer did, has done studies for many, many decades, and he says two-thirds of Western churches are either plateaued or declining in America. Not Actually, I should say two-thirds of churches in the United States are either flat or they are losing members. He says more churches will close their doors in the United States each year than will start. That's sobering, isn't it? Churches that do grow, so of the, the small percentage that do grow, increase more from transfers from other churches than winning converts. We are missing something, don't you think? I've been in churches in which we put a lot of energy, a lot of effort into programs and styles, and they didn't grow. Why? If you have the latest you know, trends of ministry or music or whatever, you know, it's, it, it, it's really... The frosting and the cake analogy. You know, we spend so much time on programs and styles and and structures of how to be, but that's the frosting. We make great frosting. And and maybe some seekers come and they taste the, the frosting, but, you know, after a while you get tired of all frosting and no cake, right? So what's the cake? 
The cake is, are you really winning people to Christ? Are you really spending time knowing God more deeply? And out of that will come the winning desire to be with people. And we get so busy working on all the frosting, all the programs and structures, that we forget the cake. is really about how do you grow your heart for Jesus that just naturally reaches out to other people. That's what the five people for five weeks, in case you weren't here uh, some weeks ago, we said, just let God lay on your heart five people and you pray for them for five weeks. You could start today. There's nothing magical about starting it three weeks ago. And pray for five weeks for God to lay them on your heart, maybe needs that they might have that you could meet. And then see what happens after five weeks if you have some encounters that, that you didn't have before, some awareness. But the frosting is fine. I love frosting. I don't like cake without frosting. I don't know about you. I may be like the kid. I could sit and eat all the frosting until I OD on sugar. But the cake is pretty important. The cake is what makes the frosting worthwhile. And the programs and structures and styles of ministry, they really make the best sense on the cake of following who God is, his structures that work in every era, in every place. So what might you be over-depending on structurally? What things, styles, forms, structures, what might you just, you cling so tight you miss what God has? We can be some co- so content in, in what we are doing and those things that we miss what God is up to. We miss what he's doing because, you know, he might do something new that doesn't fit into our form and structure. It doesn't fit into our box. Then what? And God... He's just saying, being open to me. You've got to imagine this was so huge of a change for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, this whole new kingdom thing and the Gentiles coming in. I mean, you see it in Acts as they wrestle through. What in the world does this mean? It was a big change, but we need changes. Sometimes we can become the same, maybe not in such historically massive ways, but maybe we need to change how we structure our life so we can know God better. And could it be our church structures are ineffective or on the way to being ineffective and we don't even know it? Could we have structures even here in this wonderful church that if we cling to them too tightly, it could take us places we shouldn't go. It would become ineffective. We will become the new wool, the old Woolworth stores that became ineffective. Okay, so I've talked a lot about the heart, so you might be wondering, where does structure fit in? You know, having no structure is chaos. It's anarchy. And I'm not advocating chaos and anarchy. God's plan looked and felt to them like it was chaos, but there was a plan. There was a structure. The Apostle Paul and others wrote a lot about that structure and and about how churches should be, but I want to pick out two verses that Paul wrote in Galatians about how law, which is the structure, and the spirit are going to fit together. Galatians 3.21. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. So is the structure opposed to the promises God will fulfill with his spirit? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have been come by the law. Verse 24, so the law, what's its purpose? It was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. 
So Paul talks a lot in Galatians 3 about the Spirit. Law does not bring life. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit brings life. And some think keeping in the structure, keeping the law, that's what activates the Holy Spirit. But law is not opposed to the Spirit. This is not like a get away from the evil. It's like this is just a guardian. It's a container. It's a structure that you put the main thing in. And the main thing is the Spirit. Structure and rules and styles and programs are not the main thing. It's spirit that's the main thing. The law is subordinate, yet structure and order, they're necessary for life. They're necessary. They've studied organisms. They're structured. But you know, if, if an organism is to grow, it has to adapt. It has to make new cells. It has to adjust to its conditions. You know, living where you live... And you have to, your blood gets thinner in the summer. You get thinner if you live, well, for those of you who go to Arizona and to Palm Springs, you know, you might have thin blood more more of the year, right, Lois? (laughs) And that's okay. My blood got really thin in Egypt. I mean, they would draw my blood and they think, they couldn't get it to stop sometimes because it had gotten so thin. But, you know, you come back, your blood thickens up, your body adjusts, it has to adapt to grow. It doesn't stay static. And they found that's true of organisms, people, and organisms like churches. They have to have a structure, but they have to learn to adapt and not just become rigidly fixed in a structure. So what do we do? We evaluate. We evaluate to see, does the structure in our church, in my life, help me grow? Or does my structure try to control? You need some control. But if you over-control a ministry, you kill it. If you over-control a church and say everything will happen just these ways, you can kill it. You have to have the freedom of the Spirit to do new things and take you in new directions to help growth, not control things, but to help things grow and adapt. And churches are not businesses, but we can still use sound business principles to function more effectively when the spirit is the main thing. When we build our container of our structure, or our bylaws, for instance, our constitution, we put inside of that the spirit. There's a guy named Stacy Reinhardt years ago wrote a book called Upside Down. And he writes, forms and structures either facilitate or inhibit function. Forms and structures either foster real growth and life change, or they hinder real growth and life change. Structures can be a blessing or a curse. Structures are a container, I say, for the spirit. And he says, he suggests two ways to use structure. You can make structure your focus. A lot of churches do. Here's our bylaws. Here's our programs. This is the way we do things. And then you serve that structure. Or you can let the structures serve you. You have those structures, but you adjust and adapt them along the way to serve leaders and the people. For instance, we have a structured program we've had in the past called Awana. Is the main point of Awana to memorize scripture? Is that the most important thing? Make sure people have all those, they can recite their verses and they can give them and and blue team can win. Or is it to memorize the scriptures so they can learn about God, that they can hide the scriptures in their heart 
so that, that when they're having a struggle at home, because a lot of these kids' parents don't come to church that go to Awana, not just here, but a lot of places, and they have scriptures to hide in their heart to comfort them in a relationship with God. The scripture memorization serves the bigger purpose of knowing God. Amen? But we lose sight of that. Okay? Or our small groups. Do we study small groups so we can know all of the Pharisee and the Sadducee's history? It's fun to know. It's helpful to know. But, you know, is the point knowing more and more Bible data, more and more Bible trivia? Or is the point, and again, that's not a bad thing, or is the point to know God by knowing Scripture? See, we get the things reversed, don't we? So forms and structures are the container that serve a great purpose of holding the Spirit and giving us a way to know God better. It's been said that the seven last words of the church are we have always done it that way or we have never done it that way. So we constantly evaluate our goals and our mission, our organization, our programs, and ask ourselves the hard questions. Are these building toward the goal of knowing God and glorifying him? That's the real test. Are we facilitating that growth? So number three on your outline, evaluate if structures promote or inhibit growth. So we look at them, we look at our bylaws, and we're going to be looking at our bylaws. When I came on, that was something I was told. We got to redo our bylaws. So let's, let's look at them. We'll have to figure out what, what things might we want to change. What we have had in the past was something that was called kind of a general boilerplate idea. So maybe we need to make adjustments that will help facilitate our structure. Maybe not. Don't worry. We talked about, for instance, I was joking with Sunday school that we talked about moving the tithe box. It's back in its old place. And we said, let's put it in here where people can find it. Of course, then 25 people complained to poor Bill Stuber and said, I can't find it. <laughs> it was stuffed away in here. So anyway, we're trying to like, where is a place? You know, and I'm not trying to start a church split here over where to put the, church, the tithe box. But, you know, would a new person coming in know to go over to the kitchen or it's often it's surrounded by people? Say, put your visitor card in there. And you, I didn't see where it was for weeks. I don't Oh, look, they're this. Hey, you know what? They don't do an offering in this church. Wow. I've been in church, never been in a church that didn't do an offering, but I've also never been in a church for at least a long time that met budget every year. So, hey, <laughs> what is the offering? Isn't like a sacred structure that you have to have because it's obviously working. So maybe we think, what if we put it right outside that door? Or it was easier to find. But at any rate, that's just an example. Don't panic and go home saying, I can't believe they're going to move that tithe box. <laughs> we may not. The deacons will have to also talk about that. But evaluate structures, promote or inhibit growth. So how do you respond to God's structures in your life? Are you resistant? Are you apathetic if they change? I don't care. Are you open to what God is doing to bring the spirit more into place? I'll end with Henry Nouwen. He's a theologian. Okay, I'll tell you. He's a Catholic theologian. But listen to him anyway, because some of you may not think that they have anything to say, but some of the best spiritual writers through the centuries have been Catholics. And Henry Nouwen is one of those. 
He chose, he was teaching in a Catholic seminary, and he chose to go live in a home for decades with mentally challenged people that grew up in this home. And he said, I learned more about life working with the mentally challenged than I did in all the years of seminary with the educated people. And so one of the things he wrote about, one lesson, he says, quote, sometimes I think of life as a big wagon wheel with many spokes. Imagine, you know, the wagon wheel and all the spokes coming from a hub, right? Got that picture in your mind? In the middle of is the hub. Often in ministry, it looks like we're running around the rim trying to reach everybody, but God says, start in the hub, live in the hub, and then you will connect with all the spokes and you won't have to run so fast. See, relationship with God is the hub. Knowing him guides the rest of our activity. So ask yourself, can I make the structures of my life more effective by living more in the hub where God is and running around less on the outer rim frantically trying to keep all my activities going and getting exhausted in the process? But we need to ask that during this transition time. We need to ask that same question of our church. How can our church structures become more effective in promoting living in the hub where God is? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's hard. Structures and forms and styles, they're so much more tangible. The spirit, we have to stop. We have to listen. We have to sort out what's our own thoughts versus what are God's thoughts. What are your thoughts But help us to do that, Lord, to know that living with your presence is the guiding force in our life. And show us how to let the structures be good containers for living out more and more of who you want us to be. I pray in Jesus' name.